Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see all of you here this morning, and I want to invite you to get your Bibles and ready them at Exodus chapter 31, Exodus 31, and um, Lauren Bassard is going to come, and she's going to read for us this morning. I would invite you to stand as we have our Bibles open to follow along, Exodus chapter 31, and I want to encourage you also... um, just to make sure you, you read through the bulletin. There's tons and tons of announcements. Um, so please make sure you do that to catch up on all the things that are happening here at Gateway. Lauren? The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called Bezalel the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we, we thank you for your holy word. We are amazed, Lord, as to all that you choose to reveal to us. And Lord, what you have retained for us in in particular this book of Exodus, how rich this text has been to help us with our understanding of not only the Old Testament, but the, the New Testament. And so, Lord, I ask that today as we continue that we would we would make these gospel connections, not just in theory, but they would be practical, they would be real, they would help us, Lord, to think about life and how we are to live for you. 
And so, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me to simply be your messenger, proclaiming your truth for your glory. We ask these things in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, you may have heard of Bob the Builder, the children's TV character, who always seems to overcome whatever obstacle is in his way with a yes-you-can attitude. But maybe you're less familiar with Bezalel the Builder. He's the builder chosen by God to head up the construction of the tabernacle. And today we get to meet him and learn about him as he does uh, God's work, and in particular as God works through him. Now the truth of the matter is that in Exodus 31, it it just seems to be disconnected. How do we have these two uh, kind of strange Uh, topics at the end of all of this instruction about what was going on in the temple. If you remember, in chapter 25, we began, God begins to reveal to Moses all the details about the tabernacle, what it's supposed to look like, and it ends here in chapter 31. You might expect God uh, to, to, to give Moses that detailed information and then finish all of it by saying, now Moses, this will be a glorious temple. So go now and have it made for my glory, followed by all the kind of pyrotechnics and stuff that happened on the mount in chapter 24. But that's not what happens. That's not how it ends. It's somewhat anticlimactic if we're just kind of reading it through. Instead, God finishes his instructions to Moses by telling him two things. First, these are the ones that are to construct the tabernacle. And then secondly... Remember to keep my Sabbath or you will die. Now, one thing we can be sure of, because we've seen it over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, is that what might seem tedious, haphazard, or pointless is upon further inspection, in actuality, clear, purposeful, and perfect in its context. And what we have here in verses 1 through 11, is God revealing to Moses whom he has chosen to lead the construction of the tabernacle. And then in verses 12 through 17, we have God reinforcing the need for his people to keep the Sabbath or they will die. And at first glance, those things just don't seem to connect together. But in light of the fourth commandment, they are both perfect and a complementary ending. Let me show you what I mean. Turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, and let's read the fourth commandment together. Beginning at verse 8, it says this, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days shall uh, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now we we walk through this, this particular commandment together, but I want to draw your attention to verses 9 and 10. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. We tend to read the fourth commandment, and we understand why, but we tend to read it and see the emphasis on keeping the Sabbath. But we also need to see it as emphasizing six days of work. Okay? So we tend to see it that way. In other words, in God's eyes, both work and the Sabbath are sacred. God values work and he values Sabbath rest. He is saying that our work is to be holy to the Lord and that our rest is to be holy to the Lord. So as we study God's instructions here to Moses about the tabernacle, workers in particular, and the importance of keeping the Sabbath, he is also giving us helpful guidance and counsel about both our work and our rest. And so this morning, as a proposition to kind of guide us, it's very simple. Divine instructions for work and rest. Now, just I want you to note, chapters 25 through 30, we're given the what. This is the instructions that he gives for the tabernacle. In chapter 31, verses 1 through 11, we're given the who. These are the workers that are going to build the tabernacle. In chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, we're given the when. Well, the when is every day except on the Sabbath. Except on the Sabbath. So let's jump in. God's holy work. And I want you to notice that it begins with this word. See, the Lord said to Moses, see, in other words, what I'm about to tell you is important. Pay attention to what I am saying here. And we can summarize verses 1 through 11 in one sentence. And here it is. Bazalel, Ohaliab, and able men and women, and you will find in the next section where um, the, the actual tabernacle is constructed, that women were also involved in this whole process. So that these uh, Bezalel, Ohaliab, and able men and women are called and empowered by God to work obediently for God in the construction of the tabernacle. It's just in summary, that's what's going on here. And what we want to do is we want to unpack that sentence uh, step by step to see what it is that God wants us to see. First of all, they are called. These workers are called by God. Look at verse 1. Again, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of uh, Uri. And then in verse 6, And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab. And then uh, later in verse 6, I have given to all able men ability. So the point here is that God is the one who is choosing. God is the one who's appointing But first of all, let's consider it this way. They are called by God specifically to a vocation. You remember in chapter 18, and and Moses was struggling because there's so much work to be done, and his father-in-law comes to him and says, look, why don't you pick some key guys out of the people here that can help you serve as judges so that all the, the stuff isn't coming to you. And so Moses then goes about and he chooses men to fit those roles. And he releases them to do that work. Here, however, in chapter 31, it's it's not a choice that's given to Moses. This is a choice 
that God makes, and he tells Moses, this is the guy I'm choosing, and this is the guy I'm choosing, and these are the people that I am choosing. God has chosen the best blueprint and the best materials to be used in the construction of the tabernacle. Now he chooses the best workers to accomplish this great task. So they're called by God to a vocation, but they're also called by God to a position. Each had a specific job, role, and responsibility in the tabernacle construction. Bezalel is the supervisor. Ohaliab is the supervisor's assistant. Uh, The others, the men and women, are to serve according to their gifts on particular areas of the tabernacle construction. Just think through all that we have studied so far. You need seamstresses who work on the curtains, doing embroidery, making holes and fittings for the poles and the connectors. You need tailors to construct the garments for the priests. You need jewelers to set those fine jewels in place and to inscribe words on gold. You need perfumers to blend the spices and the oils. You need goldsmiths, woodworkers, builders to craft the furniture. Each had a particular role, friends, and a particular responsibility and was called to work hard in the area of their expertise. But they were not to think of themselves only because they were a part of a greater team working together for a greater project. So God also called them to a team, to a vocation, to a position, and to a team. All of those workers working together needed to see the whole picture, needed to see what it was that they were doing, what, what, what having the tabernacle meant. They were a part of this incredible project. Now, it's significant that God mentions specifically what tribe each of the two named individuals are from. Bezalel is from the tribe of Judah. Ahaliab is from the tribe of Dan. Now, you have to ask yourself, when, when you get information like that, that the, author, you know, the writer's putting in there, he's giving you some information for a reason. The reason is this, because when Israel is on the move, they were always led by a tribe whose name was Judah. And at the tail of the entourage is the tribe of Dan. It's a way to say, this is Israel. This is all of you. You are all involved of this. In other words, all of Israel is involved in the construction of the tabernacle. This is a whole Israel project. See, we might have thought, okay, this is the tabernacle. The priests are doing that. It's kind of like the the Levite thing the priests are doing. And God is saying, no, no, no. This is our project. But we all have different roles in the project. And friends, it's important for all of us to see that our area of service to the Lord is always part of a greater whole. Now, there's a story from the life of Martin Luther that goes something like this. A man came up to him announcing that he had become a Christian. And so he had a question for Luther. And he says, what shall I do now? Should I become a priest or a monk? And Luther responds, well, what are you doing right now? And the man says, well, I make shoes for a living. And so Luther says, well, go back to your shop, make your shoes, and sell them for a fair price. That is what you can do for the Lord. 
See, the problem is so many times we think that to be spiritual, we have to somehow be involved or have as our vocation, uh, you know, Christian church ministry. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Middle Ages, in particular, where the Roman Catholic Church raised those positions to be paramount. That's why you had monks and nuns all over the place, because in their eyes, God's work was considered superior to the common work of everyday man. But with the Reformation and a renewed pursuit of looking at the world through the lens of Scripture... Rather than the tradition of the church, a biblical understanding of work was revived and clarified. So men like Luther and Calvin began to eradicate the idea that there was common work, everyday stuff that people just needed to do to keep the world running, and then there was spiritual work that was really, truly important. And so you had the separation, the clergy and everyone else. So what men like Luther and Calvin did was to elevate man's work to say that they could do their work, their job, for the glory of God. And they began showing God's people that their vocation, uh, their vocations, I should say, were divine callings. And friends, let's just pause and think about this. Who, Who do we have here? We don't have a priest. We don't have a king. We don't have a patriarch. We don't have a prophet. Who do we have here? We have a craftsman, a builder, a guy who was overseeing a building project. And God is saying, I have called him to that. I have called them to that. Now, this emphasis didn't diminish the role of pastor-teacher at all. That is a unique calling. It needs, to be, it needs to be assessed based on biblical principles and guidelines. But the emphasis here that we have from, from Luther and Calvin was a farmer was called to farm and to do it for the glory of God. A cobbler was called to make shoes for the glory of God. A printer was called to print for the glory of God and so on and so forth. Friends, if you are a child of God, he has chosen you to a particular vocation. And he wants you to take your work uh, responsibility seriously, um, to seek to work hard and for his glory. And this means knowing your job, knowing your position, as well as working as a team player, all for the glory of God. So they're chosen. They're called by God. Secondly, they're empowered by God. Verse 3 says, And I have filled them, uh, filled him uh, with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and and all craftsmanship. Now, here is this expression filled with the Spirit of God. Now, what's the meaning of that? This is the first time this expression is found in Scripture. And again, isn't it interesting? It's not a priest, it's not a king, it's not a prophet. It's a construction worker. It's a handyman. It's a, it's a foreman. And it's not what we would expect, is it? 
again, in our Christian circles, to be filled with the Spirit is considered to, to have some kind of, might say, churchy responsibility or calling a pastor or a worship leader or something like that. Those are the ones that are filled with the Spirit. And this text is saying, no, 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 no. Yes, they can be. And yes, they should be. But not just them. Even the builders, even the shop makers should be filled with the Spirit. Here in Exodus 31, it is used to describe the person, and I would argue the persons who have been tasked with the job of construction, the tabernacle, the curtains, the fittings, the furniture, whatever it might be. Now, I am not a hands-on guy. My family knows that. Um, you don't want to just leave me with a project and, and see it done. When we were in, in Michigan, um, uh, we owned a home. It was our first home, and it was, it was nasty. Um, and it had this... It had this uh, wood siding that had been painted over and over and over again. So you had layers of paint that was just peeling. And the only thing I could think that I could do was to uh, side it, just to cover it up. Because if you scraped it and painted it, it would just, it would just peel again. So we ended up siding it. it. It took me like a year to vinyl side it, to do the fascia and the soffit and all the windows. And all. I had 28 windows in this house, for crying out loud. And I, I coiled all of them. If you had, have any idea what I'm talking about, that's a lot of work. But I'm not Bob the Builder. And so a couple of years ago, I went back to Michigan and I thought, I'm going to drive by and see if, see if the siding's still holding up. <laughs> and to my surprise, it was still there, still hanging on. I was actually very, very, uh, very proud of myself at that point in time. Of course, um, I know other things that I did in the house that I'm really ashamed of that people now have to live with. Um, you probably know what I'm talking about. You've probably done similar things in your home, right? Um, I would say that, that if, I, if I had a construction company, it would probably be called Redneck Construction. And the motto would read, it might work, but it won't look pretty, right? Something along those lines, right? Um, I can change a light bulb in my car by watching YouTube. Um, that's pretty much it. Now, hear this. For God to fill me with the Spirit does not mean that God somehow in a mystical way transforms my natural abilities, which I don't have any abilities in that area, into becoming Bob the Builder. That mystically, all of a sudden, I have full knowledge of how to wire a home, reconstruct an engine, build a mercy seat, or embroider a pomegranate on a curtain. And I think sometimes we have infused into this expression filled with the Spirit, this mystical idea that God somehow comes and wows and changes. And that's not what's going on here. To be filled with the Spirit is to have an ability from God to do or say what God once said or done. It is to be controlled by God. It is to be guided by God. So it's to be filled with the Spirit, to have an ability from God to do or say what God once said or done. In other words, God uses people who have been naturally gifted by him to use that giftedness for his glory. And in Scripture, the expression filled with the Spirit indicates God's enablement then to do something or to say something. Let me give you three examples of that. From Scripture. First of all, uh, from the ministry of Micah the prophet, Micah 3.8, here's what it says. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, 
to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sins. He's filled to speak. From John the Baptist now. This is Luke chapter 1. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must drink wine or, or must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, and he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers uh, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Filled to do. Filled to do. Not filled to experience, but filled to do. Let's look at the last one. This is the Christians in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The filling of the Holy Spirit to continually speak the word of God with boldness. See, what we must see here is that God is empowering a person's natural giftedness to be used for his purposes. He refines our gifts further and further, and then he repurposes them for his own ends. In other words, Bezalel was already a construction guy. He was already a craftsman. He was already skillful. But God infuses now his spirit to harness this man whom he had called to serve in that capacity. And he does the same with us. Here's the fruit. As we read on, we see the fruit of God's empowering here. There's four things. Uh, he, He empowers them then with this ability. The idea here is not smarts. The idea is just practical wisdom. Secondly, there's there's intelligence, just the ability to discern, the ability to think, the ability to to perceive what needs to be done. Knowledge is really the understanding of the finished product. I think that one of the best illustrations here would be Michelangelo as he's carving out David from this block of of marble. He, He sees what needs to be completed, and he removes everything else that's there. That's the knowledge that is being talked about here. And then the craftsmanship really is the idea of just the skill of that particular matter at hand. The point here is that God takes his workers, his children, and empowers them with his Holy Spirit so as to use their natural abilities to say or do what he wants them to say or do. Now, that's really important, what he wants them to say or do, because that's the next point here. Not only are they called by God, they're empowered by God, but hear this, they are to work obediently for God. See, they're to work together to produce what God has laid out in his divine blueprint. Look at verse 4. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. There's a lot of details that God gives in the revealing of the tabernacle to Moses. This is how I want you to make it. And so God has commanded them with these instructions. Again, verse 6, And I have given to all men able ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. 
Now, friends, this is important because what we have happening here is we have a bunch of people who are, in a sense, creative. They're artistic. They're skilled with their hands. They're skilled to to make and do and think. And a lot of people with the arts want to be creative. But God here has a blueprint. Look at the end here of verse 11. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. See, God has not empowered these skilled workers to have freedom to exercise their giftedness in creative ways. You don't have some seamstress coming around and saying, yeah, I just don't know about pomegranates. Let's just use watermelons instead. I like watermelons. No, God said pomegranates. Or maybe they say, well, I don't know. I think think lizards would be better than cherubim. Let's go with lizards instead. No, no, no. God said we want cherubim on these curtains. We want pomegranates on these curtains. He was very specific. I mean, it's one of the strangest things in Scripture, isn't it? He talks about the curtains and on there be pomegranates. But this is what God wants. And as a craftsman empowered by him and his spirit, he expects his people to carry out their responsibilities in obedience and according to his plan. Friends, this is important for us. Because we're not saying here, well, God's called me to, you know, to, to, to go to the, uh, to, to the beach over in Half Moon Bay and sit there and I'm doing this for his glory. He's called me to this. Be really, really careful that you don't use God's calling as an excuse to do what you want to do. Be mindful that God has called you to something. He's wired you. He's created you for something. Harness that. Determine what that is and then seek your best to do it. This is God's holy work. Let's just move on now to God's holy rest. We'll begin at verse 12. The notice it says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, here's a question. Why would Moses, Bezalel, Aholiab, and all the workers need to hear God say, Above all, you should keep my Sabbaths? And the answer is this, because they have been charged with the most important construction job of all time. They're not building a tent for man, they're building a tabernacle for God. It wasn't a place for man to dwell, it was a place for God to dwell. And because you're working for God on this most important construction project, you might be pressured into thinking that you need to keep working hard and keep building, that stopping, that pausing in some way was to say, this project isn't so important to you. That giving your best, working your hardest, being passionate about the project is evidence or as evidence, I should say, by your willingness to sacrifice all other things because you are doing the Lord's work. But in God's eyes, and hear this, in God's eyes, it is because their project is so important that they must stop and observe his Sabbaths. They are to work hard for six days, 
And on the seventh, they are to rest. Now, friends, if we're honest, there's not a job, there's not a task, there's not a project or a responsibility that we have ever had that can top what these people are doing. I mean, you can imagine going to a kind of a, a gathering, social gathering, and you hear people talking about the things that they're doing. One person says, well, yeah, I invented the Internet. And the next person says, yeah, well, you know, I climbed Mount Everest last year. Another person says, well, I was the president of the United States. And they kind of look over at you, and you're kind of looking at your hands, and they're all kind of crumbly from all the work you've done, kind of a hands-on guy. And and they kind of look at you in a smug way, and you smile, and you say, well, I built the Ark of the Covenant with acacia wood and covered it with gold and crafted the mercy seat where God comes to meet and dwell with his people. And then you walk off and get yourself a Pepsi. Friends, this is no small task. This is God's dwelling place. And God is saying, when you come to build, you will not work on the Sabbath. You are to rest. Now, friends, that's so important for us. If God is calling Bezalel and Haliab and all the other craftsmen to stop and rest, then surely he's also calling on you and I to stop and to rest. He's saying to us all, no matter how important your vocation is, you need to work hard, but you also need to stop and rest. And friends, the the real issue with Israel and, and with in particular these workers was this. It's a matter of trust. If I keep the Sabbath, I'm going to have to trust that God is going to take care of me by not actually working on that day because there's always something that can be done. Anyone experience that? There's always something that needs to be done. And when you have that mindset, you're just constantly going to be going at it, going to work. And God say, no, 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 trust me. Take your rest. Trust me. It'll be okay. Trust me. And so for us, it's also a matter of trust. To stop, to pause, and to rest. Friends, it's so important, especially in our fast-paced, project-driven, outcome-oriented, secular world. We've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go to the neglect of that essential, which is rest. Biblical rest. So again, let's summarize this section in one sentence. This is what God says to Moses to speak to the people. You are to keep the Lord's Sabbaths because they are a unique sign, a special day, and a gift from God. Now notice, I said Sabbaths, not Sabbath. That's important. Why is it important? Because the Sabbath is not just a one-time event. It's a repeated rhythm event. You are to keep these. You are to keep these. You are to keep this rhythm going in your life. So we want to unpack this sentence now. First of all, they are a unique sign that you are holy. Look at verse 13. Above all, uh, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between you and uh, between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, to my knowledge, no other religion, maybe we say major religion out there in the world, uh, where people are ordered 
or commanded to cease from all work uh, on one day and seven. Uh, Muslims don't have a day set aside for, uh, for during the week at all. They, they have Friday. They're supposed to go to Friday and, and have prayer at midday on Friday, but then they can go right back, right back to work. In Hinduism, uh, you don't have a special day. It's only in Judaism uh, where there's built in this day set aside to rest from their labors. And it's a sign that those around them can see, ah, you must be followers of the God of Israel. It's a sign. It's a sign to yourself. It's also a sign to those around you. Get this. Remove the Sabbath and you remove Israel's identity. It is what marked them out as being different. It was God's sign that they were set apart from everyone else to be his special people. And friends, the question that we need to ask ourselves today as the church is, what makes us different from the world around us? What makes you different? What makes us different? Is there a day that we consistently set aside for the Lord? You're saying, Pastor Rod, hello, I'm here. I, I get that. But we, we, need to, we need to hear, we need to be reminded of God's truth here. As Christians, we don't observe the Sabbath, Old Testament Sabbath, but we do celebrate the Lord's Day. And it is a day that, that has slowly become crowded out with all sorts of amusements, activities, and opportunities to the neglect of truly taking time to pause and to rest. Friends, the Lord's Day is just like the Sabbath. It is a sign to us and to the world around us that our walk with God, our connectivity to God's church, and the progress of the kingdom of God is important to us. We're not called to make a show about it. We don't get up Sunday morning and kind of, you know, flash the lights and let people know, okay, we're getting ready to go to church now. <laughs> Blast the Christian music so they can all hear it, you know, and as we walk out, make a procession noisily so everyone can see. No, it's just a normal, regular habit that we have. And my question to you would be, do your neighbors know that this is your habit, that around nine, between nine and ten, you're, you know, getting in your car, making your way, and about one o'clock or so, you return back it's a sign. It's a sign that there's something important in your life. It's a sign that this is regular. It's a sign that I'm, I'm going to gather with God's people to worship God. It's a, it's a sign that I care about the kingdom of God, uh, you know, developing and growing and moving forward. So they are a unique sign that you are holy. Secondly, they are a, they are a special day to remember God's covenant. Now, some Christians might be tempted to say, and I've heard things very similar to this from other people, I think that it would be a good idea if people would refrain from doing work or keeping busy on the Lord's Day. That is, if they have the time or don't have other obligations or can afford to do it. Now, God does want me to be a faithful worker. I know that. He wants me to enjoy this creation so I can go out and I can enjoy the creation. He wants me to engage with the unbelieving community so I can do that. Doesn't he want me to do those things? And the answer is, well, yes, yes, and yes. But here's the caveat. Above all. Above all. Above all, keep my Sabbaths. And today as the church, we would say, above all, make your Sundays 
a priority. In verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among the people. That's pretty radical stuff, isn't it? The idea of profaning isn't somehow simple neglect. But somehow you're, 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 you're being diligent in your walk with God and, and, and you just, there's something you forgot. You, know, you, you maybe picked up a piece of dough that, and moved it over here and it violated the law. And it's not like, you know, 2319, you know, God's, God's crew is going to come in and somehow surround you and you're going to die. It's not the neglect. What, what, what's being talked about here is a, de, a deliberate rebellion against the keeping of the Sabbath. See, God doesn't want us to walk around on eggshells always worrying about the fact that we're breaking some law. That wasn't the point. But he is deeply concerned about those who will willfully disregard the Sabbath. And that's why we have these consequences, death and being cut off from the people. What God wanted from his people was that they pause and remember his covenant. One of the purposes of the Sabbath was to keep remembering the covenant, to keep dwelling on it so that it fueled you to face what you had coming in the following week. It takes us back to chapter 24. If you remember chapter 24, what we had there is we had God making a covenant with his people. And we found them twice saying these words. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All uh, that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. This is what they said. And they were being reminded now of God's promise to them and of their affirmation of that promise. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, without going into great detail here, he, he does bring some understanding of exceptions to the keeping of the Sabbath. There's three ways that he comes and he identifies that. First of all, there's works of necessity. There's some people who are part of our church family here who have to work on a Sunday. They're nurses. Or they're in certain kind of jobs where that's just what you got to do. Maybe you're military. That's what you got to do. In order to, to serve the people, these are the responsibilities you have. Police officers, um, you know, first responders, that kind of stuff. I remember years ago, you know, pastor preaching hard and saying, you know, you shouldn't work on Sunday, you shouldn't work on Sunday. And I understand exactly where he's going with that. We should do our best to make sure we prioritize being a part of God's church. And then, of course, what did the pastor do right after church? He went out to dinner at a restaurant where someone who was working is serving him. There's a reality that you've got to ask yourself the question, is this a work of necessity? Now, we don't want to backfill that with our kind of necessity, but with God's necessity. Right? Secondly, works of emergency. Your donkey has fallen into a ditch. Well, I can't do anything about it. It's the Sabbath. Or, you know, you break down on, uh, on 880. You call a friend. Now you're all both violated the Lord's Day. No, this is, this is emergency. Of course God's going to let you take care of that, right? Works of mercy. Someone's in need, and so you're working to help that person out. Now, we are not under the umbrella of the Sabbath. My point is, as you, as you filter, hey, you know, what should I be doing on a Sunday? This is a helpful thing. Jesus reveals that to us in the Gospels as he's interacting with the disciples as well as with the, 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 the religious leaders. The point is for us to ask the question, what are we doing with our Sunday? 
So they're a unique sign that you're holy these Sabbaths. They're a special day to remember God's covenant. Third, they're a loving gift of refreshment. This is probably the most important one from the perspective of understanding what has just happened with Israel. In the context of Exodus, what we, what we were reminded of is that Israel was enslaved. Slaves don't typically get a day off. Excuse me, I think I'm going to take this weekend off, Master. Uh, my wife and I want to go down to the Nile and you know, maybe spend some time at the resort there with our kids and stuff. No, 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 that didn't happen. Why? Because they're slaves. You work for me. You do as you're told. But now God comes and he rescues them out of slavery. And now, according to his kindness, he says, I want you to work for six days and I'm going to gift you a day of rest. We don't often think of it that way, do we? This was a gift to Israel. It was a loving gift. And in verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. One person has said this, I never knew a man escape failures in either mind or body who worked seven days a week. Now the Sabbath, friends, is rooted in creation. God worked for six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And God adds the words here, and was refreshed. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, did God really need to rest? Did God really need to be refreshed? And of course, the answer is no, but hear this, and this is critically important. God models in his creation order what our rhythm should be in life. God models in his creation order what our rhythm should be in life. Six days of labor, and on the seventh day, rest and refreshment. Friends, isn't that what we long for, refreshment? Isn't that what we long for, the kind of rest that that only God can bring? This is a gift from God. God. God knows our frame. He knows our struggles. He knows what we can handle, what we can endure, and he knows that we have need of being refreshed. So I ask you, what is pressuring you to abandon God's weekly creation-oriented rhythm? Is it your job? Are they asking you to do stuff that they shouldn't be asking you? Is it your pride that you're consumed with with putting on such a good performance that you can't just let go and be obedient and rest as God wants you to rest? Is it your fear, fear of failure, fear of wanting to make sure you've got it right or haven't done enough? I mean, if you're like me, I can be that way. I can just like work and say, I want to get it right. I want to get it right. And I had it right five hours ago but you're still not certain. So you're questioning. So you're constantly working and you're not resting. Is it your unbelief? You've drifted away from seeing its importance in your life, that you need this time. I want to ask you another question. Do you trust God? Do you believe that God knows what is best for you 
and that by setting aside that work, you will actually be better off. And this means then kind of, you know, stepping back from what you're in and saying, here's the truth that God wants me to know. And then going back with that truth and applying it to that context. Because so many times when we're in the middle of that context, we can't see that truth being realized. We've got to be able to step back and and recalibrate, so to speak, so that we can come back in and say, you know what? No, I'm going to set this aside and this is what I'm going to do because God wants me to rest. So what is it that you're doing that is deliberately taking you away from the regular gathering with God's people? It could be hobbies, it could be laziness, it could be lack of discipline, it could be fear, anxiety, amusements, distractions, and we could go on and on. This is God's holy rest. God's holy work, God's holy rest. They come together under the umbrella of the fourth commandment. Both are sacred. Both are holy to the Lord. And here we're able to see that these workers wanted or were commanded to work hard with the abilities that they have empowered by the Holy Spirit and being obedient to God and that they were to observe, all of Israel's to observe the Sabbaths because it's a sign, because it was a reminder of the covenant and also um, because of, of, of this loving gift that brought refreshment. But now we, we see at the end of the section this summary verse, verse 18, and we have to ask ourselves what's going on here. Verse 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablet of stone written on the finger of God. So what, what we have here is the finishing of what began in chapter 25, verse 1. You want to turn back there, chapter 25, verse 1. I just want to briefly just walk you through where we've been. Go back to chapter 25. We begin there, we see a call for God's people to make contributions, verses 1 through 9. Then we have the construction and the placement of the Ark of the Covenant, the table of bread, the golden lampstand. You can probably just read your little headings if you have it broken down there. The construction of the tabernacle in chapter 26 with its curtains, its clasps, its frames, its bars, its veil, its green, and then the construction of the outer courtyard and the bronze altar. Then we had two chapters with the priests, if you remember, the priest garments and the priest consecration. And then last week, we looked at the rest of the construction and creation, the altar of incense, the bronze basin, the anointing oil, the incense. And now in chapter 31, we have the builders who are called to to, to both work and above all to rest by keeping the Sabbath. And then we read verse 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony. What's going on here? These are the the two tablets, and we've talked about this before. They weren't like, you know, here's half of the, or the first four commandments were on one tablet, and, you know, five through ten were on the other commandment. No, the way they did covenants is you you had copies. They were both identical copies, one for God, one for the people. He's coming down. So what we have here is not just the end of this discussion about the tabernacle. It's also the end of the discussion that God has with Moses on the mountain. So we have the Ten Commandments that are revealed. We have the the case law, if you remember. 
And it's all written by the finger of God. That means the authority of God. So as we think about the, the finger of God here, I want you to notice, first of all, that it's, it's, it's talking about that God had revealed this divine law. He's revealed the, the divine case law. He's revealed this divine blueprint for the tabernacle. Now, friends, this is truly divine love that is willing to condescend and make a way to meet with his people. He is holy and we are not. And yet God has made a way and he's revealed what that looks like. He's given instructions, he's called for the builders, and he's saying, now let's keep the Sabbath as we're doing this. All these things are working together. Now let's bring this to a close. I have two kind of major points of application that we want to think through beyond what we've already said so far. The first thing is this. Because this passage talks about work, it's important for us to realize that that God calls us to pursue our vocation for his pleasure. Not in drudgery. For his pleasure. In in the 1970s, uh, there was a movie that you're probably aware of, called Chariots of Fire. And the main character was Eric Little, known as the Flying Scotsman. He was supposed to run the 400 meters, but it landed on Sunday, and so he said, I can't do it. And so he and his teammates kind of reconstructed things, and he basically ended up running the 100 meters and the 200 meters, and he got gold in both of those. It's a great story. And this is in 1924 at the Paris Olympics. But here's, here's one of the statements that he made to a friend. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I'm going to say it one more time, and I want you to think about what it is that God has called you to. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When we see our vocation as God's calling and we pursue it, seeking to glorify him, we are released to pursue that vocation and to feel God's pleasure in it. Maybe what you need to do is to step back again and to reassess your vocation through the lens of God's word and his will. You may not like your job. You may not like your coworkers. You may not like your commute and the, or the pressure or the work culture or the long hours or the lack of appreciation. But friends, that job is God's will for you right now. How do I know this? Because it's where you're working right now. You don't have to open the Bible and find chapter and verse and That's where you are. So what are you supposed to do? I'm supposed to work hard with a high ethic for the glory of God. And in doing that, I can feel God's pleasure. So friends, take the time to see your job, your vocation, through a God-centered, a biblical lens. Be thankful for the work that you have. Warts and all, every job has its struggles, does it not? Be attentive with the opportunities that your work will give you to radiate the beauty of Christ uh, around, uh, around the world. I hear this. There was some time I wasn't in ministry, and I was looking for work, and I ended up working at, at FedEx. And it was wonderful for me. It was horrible for me, but it was wonderful for me. 
I mean, it's just tossing boxes into containers and it was hard work. And I was like 45 and there were like 20-year-olds that were working next to me. But we're all standing there for hours and we're talking and, of course, questions come up and they ask questions. And, I mean, I got to share the gospel multiple times just standing in a warehouse filling up a container. It was an opportunity that God placed me in which is a far greater opportunity than I even have as a pastor. See, this is what we have to understand. Yes, there's a certain role to be a pastor, to be in leadership in the church, but we are all in this together. We all have parts to play. God has empowered us with his spirit wherever he places us to do his will. So be thankful for the work you have. Be attentive to the opportunities that God has given you. Be diligent in your work so that your work ethic, your integrity, your willingness to learn and grow is evident. And remember that your real boss is Christ. He's the one, and his opinion is what matters most. Are you pleasing him. See, are you feeling God's pleasure because you're pursuing your vocation in such a way as to please him? The goal for all of us then is to feel God's pleasure whenever we go to work. You're like, you don't know where I go to work, Pastor Ryle. I I don't have to. This is what God calls every believer to do, whatever they're called to do, and seek to do it for his pleasure. It may be drudgery. It may not be a good environment, but it's where God has placed you to radiate the truth of the gospel to people who desperately need it. And I know, I know that so many of you are in those hard places. For you to have a serious conversation with someone could be very dangerous, but you're there. And you're seeking to be a light in that place. It's not just about the money. It's also about being in that place. So hear this. You want to be in this place where you're, you're working for God's pleasure. And, and I just list some things here. That, that also includes being a homeschool mom. Or working in the tech industry. Baking donuts. Teaching a group of kids. You go down the list of things. Pursue your vocation for God's pleasure. It's one side. Secondly, pursue your rest for God's pleasure. See, God wants us all to work hard, but he also wants us to rest. And the rest that he's talking about isn't sitting in front of the TV, binge-watching reruns of Jeopardy, or watching Lord of the Rings, but beginning with the Hobbit trilogy all the way to the end. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There's a time and a place for that. Some people equate rest with sitting on the couch. This is, not, this is not the biblical rest that's being talked about here. The kind of rest that results in God's pleasure is a rest that comes with being actively engaged in your spiritual walk with God. And by actively engaged, I'm saying that you're taking time to do at least three things. There's more things, but to do at least three things. First of all, to attend to your own personal time with God. There's a pause. It doesn't have to be on Sunday. This can be obviously 
during the week. But it's a pause where you say, God, I want to interact with you and I'm going to read your word. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to spend time interacting with you through prayer. Secondly, it's attending your corporate time with God. It means first and foremost, being present with God's people as they gather to worship on a Sunday morning, which is what you guys are doing here. But emphasize this this priority. It means making that a top priority, one that will only be derailed by sickness or some unforeseen urgent conflict. Now, of course, we've got to get out of COVID, don't we? I know. How many of you watched a sermon in your pajamas? Be honest. How many of you watch the sermons in your pajamas while eating a bowl of cereal? Okay, right. We've got to work our way back out of that now and say, look, I've got to get back to the place where this is a priority. This habit, this rhythm is, is set in stone. Not just out of legalism, but out of the fact that this is where freedom comes It comes from sitting under the word. It comes from fellowshipping with God's people. It comes from being the body of Christ gathered together. See, we're not only called to a vocation, but we're called to Christ. And we've been called, because we're called to Christ, to worship and to worship together as a body of believers. That's the church. So when you come to church, are you coming for his pleasure? I mean, do you, do you break out of the stalls of, of your garage and say, can't wait to be in church today? Because I go for his pleasure. And when you've come, have you joined in song? Have you partnered in prayer? Have you engaged in ministry of the word? Have you interceded with the body in such a way that you are bringing God pleasure? And when you've been with God's people, are you refreshed? See, this is the joy that God gives with his kind of rest. Okay? Now, the second part of that is attend to your, uh, not just the corporate time of God, but secondly, underneath that, um, taking advantage of the smaller group time. You know, tonight's home group. And this is, again, not a plug for home group, but it's, it's, it, is, it is just reinforcing what we are seeking to do here at Gateway. The, the, the foundation is, you know, gathering together as a corporate body. Second on top of that is small groups. And then on top of that is one-to-one ministry. Being engaged in all of those things together, making that part of the rhythm, part of the habit, part of the mindset that you have. There's a very few people, friends, that love cross-country runners. Any cross-country runners here? When I was in school in England, we did cross-country during our PE class. It was a long PE class. And it was even longer when we did cross-country, of course. And it began with this very steep but sandy hill. And the goal was you had to run up this hill and get to the top. And then if you got there, it was a steady run. It was a long run, but along a ridge, down, and back again. But just getting up this hill Climbing this hill was incredibly difficult. Now, notice I didn't say running up the hill. I said climbing up the hill. We hated those who ran up the hill um, as if it was nothing. They were freaks of nature, or so we thought. And then if you did make it up to the top of the hill, you were so out of breath that when you started running, 
You had what was called a stitch, right? A cramp on the left side of your abdomen, and it hurt, and it just, you just wanted it to stop. But the PE teacher, in this case, it was Mr. Platt, who was running with us, would say, Don't let that stitch stop you! Run it through! Run it through! It will stop, and you will get your legs back once again! When you hear that, you're like, Okay, I'm going to keep running. Run it through! Run it through! I think every serious athlete knows that experience. They know what it's like to start running and to get that pain. And they know to run it through. And friends, this is true of our Christian walk also. We start running and it gets daunting and hard and we just want to stop. And then a friend, a pastor, a song The Holy Spirit, through his word, says to us in some fashion, press on, run it through, then you will find your spiritual legs. And when you find your spiritual legs, you're now running for God's pleasure. God has called us to run according to his creation rhythm, to work hard for six days and to rest for one. And to not let the stitches of the race stop us. He's calling us to run it through, to get our legs, and then to run for his pleasure. Friends, we all have a place to work in God's blueprint. Christ is our master builder. We are his workers. And he orchestrates the rhythm of our life. Work, 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 rest. Lord, help us today. Help us to contemplate the vocations you've called us to. Maybe to see them in a little different light. And Lord, we ask that we would maybe have that, if we have that job that maybe we loathe because it's burdensome or the people that are there Would you breathe a freshness into our hearts, into our thinking, into our awareness, so that when we come back to that job place, we're we're not seeing this as simply something we have to do to make money. We see this as the very place that you have called us to and to bring God glory in. And Lord, may we elevate the the kind of work that needs to be done in this world and not somehow make a huge distinction between those that are pastors and elders in the church from the, the rest that are simply workers. Lord, we're all using our gifts for your glory. We're all working together as your body with unique roles and responsibilities. Lord, help us to see the beauty of that picture. And Lord, help us to to truly and rightly and biblically rest, to take advantage of the things that are before us, opportunities to fellowship and to be encouraged uh, with being uh, with one another and spending time in your word and just enjoying genuine uh, Christian fellowship. Lord, we, we just praise you for the body of Christ. How wonderful it is. Lord, teach us, shape us, 
Mold us, Lord, through the things that we've talked about this morning. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.